Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome back to Oh God What Now, the John McClane of Politics podcast, smashing up the Nakatomi Plaza Tory incompetence. I'm Alex Andreu. If you're free this Thursday, 2nd of March, I'll be answering our Patreon backers' questions on Zoom in our very first podcaster's question time at 7pm. But first, it looks like Sunak got Brexit done. Again, the question is, will Brexiters take yes for an answer this time? Also, Swella Braverman fans the flames of a growing, ugly, far-right backlash to the migrant crisis. How have the fringes captured so much of our body politic? And our EU salad days are over as Big Turnip finally succeeds in nudging Brexit Britain back to the 40s. We'll be talking to friend of the podcast, Jay Rayner, about the food supply fiasco. So, let's meet the panel. First up, Yasmin Serhan is staff writer at Time magazine. Hello, Yasmin. Hello, Alex. Yasmin, business leaders seem to be in a bit of a stampede to make friends with Labour at the moment. Business donors, both disenchanted former Labour ones and disenchanted Tory ones, are queuing up to compliment Starmer. You were there at the launch of Labour's economic programme today, Monday. What's the vibe? Yeah, so it was kind of a weird one. I was both at the sort of stump speech that he gave at the beginning about the economy, very much echoing sort of what we heard from him in Manchester last week. Um, And then he also did a roundtable with business executives, people from trade unions, even um, kind of local city officials. And there was definitely like an excited buzz in the room. Um, You know, I know we've talked a lot about how American politics makes it so that like elections are kind of happening all the time. But the energy in that room very much felt like this wasn't a precursor to the May local elections. This is a precursor to like 2024. Like we're getting ready. So slowly but surely, we are making you all American. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, you know, everyone in the room was talking about the challenges facing the country, the steps labor should take um, to address them, almost as though them winning was a foregone conclusion, which I thought was really interesting. Um, And I spoke with a few attendees after who attended the roundtable, and they said they very much described it, I think, as sort of a sea change. I mean, I don't think they would have seen Jeremy Corbyn sitting around that roundtable, sort of, you know, asking questions of business leaders, taking suggestions for for what they should be doing, what the priorities should be. So, yeah, it was very interesting. Mm. Um, also with me, writer and comedian, I hear Shah, fresh from Leicester Comedy Festival. Hiya here. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. <laughs> Very much in the John McLean spirit, <laughs> are you? Um, you were on Your Dead to Me last week. Enjoyed mm-hmm. that. Talking about the Indus River Valley, uh, home to one of the first and biggest prehistoric civilizations. If you grew up in the UK, history started for you in school somewhere around the death of Henry VII. So this must have been quite enlightening. What did you learn? Uh, we, we learned one more Henry at school. You know, it was sort of like Henry VIII, bit of a shagger, World War II. That's it, right? Like, <laughs> may, may, maybe something about a fire in London at some stage. Uh, I mean, 
It was yeah, it was absolutely fascinating. So this was um, Greg Jenner's, uh, the historian Greg Jenner's uh, show, "You're Dead to Me" on uh, Radio Four and BBC Sounds, uh, talking with uh, Dr. Danica Barik uh, at Cambridge uh, about this uh, Indus Valley civilization. And uh, they're not, you know, like not prehistoric in the sense that they weren't like, you know, it makes you think that they're going to be mixing cement in a pelican or something like that, and like <laughs> running around uh, with cars that uh, with with holes at the bottom. Um, but this was an extraordinary uh, civilization uh, found in what's now India and Pakistan thousands of years ago, uh, predating much of what we think of as ancient civilizations in terms of like Babylon, Mesopotamia, these things. Mm. Um, and what really struck me was some of the similarities uh, with things that I did know about. So for example, it was shown an image of uh, Harappa, this um, site, uh, and it looked from an aerial view so like Pompeii, uh, where I was able to visit in 2022. Mm, mm. And it's just sort of not not to be all sort of like the universal oneness of humankind, man, but, you know, um, and I'm sure that if someone, for, if a Pompeian and a Harappan met each other, they'd try and murder each other instantly. But, uh, <laughs> but it was um, really cool to see that just like when human beings start to move in these sort of larger conurbations and stuff, there's just a way that we seem instinctively to do them wherever we are in the world. And it's why sort of if you live in cities, whenever you go to any other city in the world, there's a sort of bit of it that you intuitively understand. And I thought that that was such a wonderful thing to be able to recognize about uh, culture so alien in mm. time and place uh, to our own. So it was really a fascinating oh, thing to learn about. That's beautiful here. And... and uh... Yet I am haunted by that image of mixing cement in a pelican, <laughs> um, which I can fully see on the Flintstones. <laughs> uh, Marie Leconte, finally, is a journalist and author of Escape, How a Generation Shaped, Destroyed and Survived the Internet, available in formats both digital and analogue, meaning an actual book made of paper. Hello, Marie. That is true. Hello. <laughs> Awful news today, Marie. Um, Monday. Former common speaker, the iconic Betty Boothroyd, has passed. Here she is in action. Order! 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 There is no point in waiting for silence. The honourable gentleman is going to get silence. <laughs> Produce your voice, Mr Hill! I've just made it clear to Mr Duncan Smith that the leader of the opposition is not giving way. And yet, since I made it clear, he has been on his feet three times trying to intervene and to disrupt. Order! Order! I haven't finished! I haven't finished! I have not finished as yet! The leader of the opposition has made it clear he's not giving way. Oh, my lords, my... Oh, my lord, order. A very good way to begin order. the week, I think. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, just absolutely wonderful. Marie, tributes have been warm and universal. What made her so loved? Um, well, so I think the most obvious answer is that obviously she was the first ever uh, female speaker of the House of Commons. And especially at a time, and I think actually listening to those clips, I uh, watched a few others earlier today. It's easy to forget just how male the chamber was at that point as well. So I think being able to rein all those annoying men in uh, was quite the feat. But also, so I think if you look at British politics, you know, the, the things that make people like, you know, either beloved politicians is that they're either incredibly good at their jobs or their characters. You know, they're quite funny and quite weird and quite compelling. And I think Betty Boothroyd was one of those rare politicians who was both. Like yeah. she was clearly an incredibly good speaker, 
and you know an, an efficient MP before that. Um, but also, again, clearly really fun. So I remember actually a few years ago, I went to the pub with my friend uh, over the summer and she said, call Betty Boothroyd's office now. And I was like, that genuinely what are you on about? It's like Thursday, 9pm. Why would I call Betty Boothroyd's office? Just, just do it. Fine. So it was about August or something. And you see, she was on holiday and she'd recorded her own uh, sort of like voicemail <laughs> in her office, which was incredibly sort of like funny and gruff and like very Yorkshire-y, which was so fun. So we told everyone to do it and then had this slight thing at the end of the summer going, oh God, she's going to come back to her office. If, if, that, if there are means for her to see how many people have called her over the summer at really weird times, <laughs> how this will get back to us. <laughs> we salute you, Betty. We shall never see her like again. The rumour around Westminster has been that the new Northern Ireland Protocol deal has been agreed weeks ago and we were just waiting for the choreography to unfold. For the inevitable, it was hard and we had to work until the last moment, but few we did it, press conference. The waving of papers and the rave reviews to happen. And on Monday, it did. Sunak announced, fanfare, the Windsor Framework. This is a hugely significant moment for Sunak's premiership. Everyone is looking breathlessly to see how the DUP, Northern Ireland Main Unionist Party, will read it, will react. Some members of the ERG have been making increasingly negative noises all week. We are not stupid, Marc Francois declared. (laughs) Stop it. Uh, complaining about aspects of the deal that three years ago were declared as absolutely ticking every box by um, Marc Francois. Others have been notably quiet. Johnson behind the scenes is spinning a narrative of betrayal, hoping what? In the last seven years, he has brought down three prime ministers, Cameron, May and, well, himself. Is he hoping for a fourth? Can the Conservative Party really survive another civil war? Marie, the general shape of the deal is pretty much as had been expected. Green and red lanes, a lighter touch. Some say uh, on new regulation by the Assembly called the Stormont Lock, renamed the Stormont Break now by Sunak. Um, A more appellate role for the European Court of Justice, some flexibility on VAT and state aid. Was there anything that went further than expected or fell shorter or was a complete surprise? Um, I think most of it seemed to be expected, although I think the EU maybe um, negotiated more than was expected. But no, I, I spoke, so I'm not, I'm happy to admit, uh, an expert on this. But I talked to a friend of mine who is an expert on this um, and who said that, yeah, the storm and break uh, stuff on VAT and anything decent on subsidies would be the main things to look out for once we get the kind of more mm. granular details. So there will probably be a few things that we didn't quite expect, but I think... There weren't any sort of, you know, massive rabbits, as the chancellors usually pull out of hats during the budget. You know, the fact, you know this kind of emergency break, so um, allowing Stormont to opt out of EU goods rules that would have significant and lasting effects on everyday lives. I think that will go quite a long way towards um, assuaging the fears of uh, the, the more sort of Brexity or more union-y people. And we hear, as we're recording this evening, that... The Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, that really contentious bit of legislation that was looking to just override bits of the treaty, has been formally dumped now by the government. So that's that's that is something, yeah, Yeah, yeah. quite a big thing. The general perception is that the EU has made several concessions. They are exaggerated for domestic UK consumption, for sure. Like all the stuff about green and red lanes seems to me 
pretty much what the the trader approved trader scheme was just mm. slightly grander um the the new rules on uh, having an objection seem very similar to the right of reservation that Norway has as part of the EEA but there have been concessions um made this is i think on the outer reaches of what anyone could have expected in a good way right is this a sign that the uk was right all along to press for more or a sign that the eu considers the humiliation of brexit so obvious and complete now that it can afford to be gracious um i think it's a third option and uh, this will blow your mind um but you know now we've seen as, as a negotiation expert i will say that it usually helps in negotiations to have someone at the helm of one side who is not uh, either a c- or someone who has no power whatsoever to actually negotiate Um, you know, no, because I think the problem is that Theresa May fundamentally, I think, tried to argue in good faith uh, to an extent with the EU. But everyone knew that everyone with eyes knew that the House of Commons was not behind her in a meaningful way. And Boris Johnson is not someone you can trust. And so I think the EU never had, you know, th- there was never enough good faith, I think, there because they knew that either Boris could stab him in the back or just go back on his word mm, or, mm. or or or. So as I think Rishi Sunak turning up in that mix of both having a massive majority a lot of Tory MPs who clearly just want this to be over and will sort of vote for most things and also seems to be negotiating in decently good faith, you know. And all, by partners, all of that. By partisan support. No, exactly. That's, so all of that, I think, too. culminates in the other side going, well, yes, fine, actually, we may be able to budge on some of the things we said we probably mm. wouldn't budge on. Mm. I hear the DUP's red line seems to be any sort of differential treatment of Northern Ireland to the rest of the UK, any kind of uh, subjugation to EU legislation, any border down the Irish Sea. Mm. Isn't that the deal that they were offered by Theresa May and rejected? I mean, am I, yeah. am I having a memory lapse? <laughs> when they offered for the whole of the UK to stay within this arrangement so that they were seamlessly part of the whole and shouted it down. Yeah. Well, I think that, uh, as Marie correctly noted, there was a, a really big difference in Theresa May's sort of internal position and domestic political position compared to the position that uh, Rishi Sunak finds himself in now. I also think that there's sort of uh, maybe an undervalued thing of just it's now been some time uh, yeah. since this has gone. And we have had the situation for you know, since basically immediately after uh, the vote to leave, the DUP in particular have been like, right, what we would like to do is put this here square peg into this round hole. Mm. And every time someone has said, yes, but that's not like, that's not how anything works. A square peg can't go into a round hole. It's like, well, have have you given it a go? Yeah, I've given it a go. I've, I've given it a good old go, but it just doesn't, it doesn't fit. Like, that's not how anything's right. All right, well, okay, that's that's all fine and well, but I will be stopping you from doing anything until you put this square peg into this round hole. There were always going to be multiple mutually exclusive things involved in Brexit, right? It's like you don't want any sort of differential treatment, but you want to leave the European Union and you want the United Kingdom to in its government to leave the European Union. Like you have to pick uh, between those things. It's obviously like we have across these aisles a, a, a political class that seems uniquely shocked by the concept of a sea. Uh, right, like both uh, the Irish, like some of them don't understand uh, that the one between uh, England and France exists, and are shocked when it's closed when they're on holiday, and others don't seem to realise that uh, there's, you know, there is the Irish Sea, and there is a <laughs> land border with the European Union, and something has to happen in one of the like you can't. Yeah. Um, 
So it, it'll be interesting. Obviously, at, at the time of recording, we still don't fully know uh, what uh, the DUP are going to make of this and what uh, line that they're going to take. I think that Sunak, in his statement with uh, President von der Leyen, was very keen to say that, look, let's everyone take a breath and take some time mm-hmm. and actually consume the meaning of this deal before we leap to, why aren't you putting my square peg yeah, in this yeah, yeah. Uh, Right. And so... One hopes that that has some sort of effect. Uh, Equally, there are lots of people associated with the Brexit project who love nothing more than to yell betrayal or we was robbed. Before the deal was announced, ERG strongman of Brexit, Steve Mm -hmm. Baker, came out of number 10 beaming and said that the prime minister is on the cusp of securing a fantastic result. And he was the first, one of the first to endorse it right after telling Sky News that uh, it deals with all the points and that Rishi Sunak is a statesman Mm -hmm. in this. Um, Will this likely influence his former ERG colleagues or simply cause them them to declare him a traitor? Well, as I said, there will always be the sort of cohort who are True Brexit has never been tried, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And Rishi Sunak's job, it feels, in a situation like this is basically to try and minimize the number of people in that cohort. But there is there is never going to be any way of getting that cohort down to zero, right? I know that he's not in parliament, obviously, but Nigel Farage is never going to turn around and say, like, this is great and this is exactly what uh, I wanted because he, as I was saying before, is one of these people whose entire project is based around concepts of betrayal. Yeah, because this is Gray would basically signal his retirement. (laughs) Mm, Yeah. Uh, Now, I I think it's also important to remember that when we say fantastic, I think there's there's been a really interesting thing uh, throughout the sort of like these, these early days of the 2020s, where we've gone from the before the referendum and in the immediate aftermath of the referendum, this is going to be great. Everything's going to be so much better. Everything's going to be wonderful uh, to a position where even Brexiteers like Rishi Sunak, who sincerely sort of backed it uh, oh. and everything in the lead up to 2016, is basically coming out and saying like, listen, guys, if, if you squint real hard, it's pretty much going to be as easy as it was before when we were in the <laughs> European Union. Right. So it's like, you know, it's, it's crucial that we remember like, a fantastic result. It, it, Steve Baker's definition of a fantastic result and my definition of a fantastic result <laughs> are very different because I didn't think that 2016 was a fantastic result, right? Uh, and, uh, I, yeah. Yeah, or Johnson's deal, for that matter, which he called fantastic at the time. Yasmin Johnson has been leading the revolt from the sidelines, insisting effectively that the oven-ready deal he negotiated was shite. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's what it boils down to, Right. Nicholas Watt reports one Tory MP saying this will finish Johnson. He has nowhere to go. If the size and manner of any revolt turns out to be anemic, can it actually scupper his attempt to make a comeback? Given the fact that he's so synonymous with Brexit, this shouldn't surprise me. But I just want to state for the record that we are two premierships removed from the Johnson era. And yet we're still like there's this lingering preoccupation over what he thinks and what impact it's going in to fairness, have. In fairness. Yeah, like one of them lasted about six yeah, minutes. Yeah. Okay, one and a half, one, one and a 44th premierships away from him. Um, you know, I think that's obviously a testament to his enduring relevance and the fact that this was his, as you say, oven ready, half-baked, whatever, Brexit deal. 
I think it could expose the limits of his influence. And I could see him actually being quite defensive of it. Because as you say, he is fighting against a deal that he negotiated. Mm. But at the same time, because his legacy has been so tied with this outcome, um, to to have someone, let alone someone who helped to bring down his premiership, be the one to take it even further over the line. Well, I mean, that's the existential horror of it for Johnson, that his legacy is in danger because Rishi Sunak can now turn around and say he promised it, but I actually delivered it. I got Brexit done. Um, And where does that leave him? I I was trying to think on the train over here, I was trying to think what would he argue going forward that he could do a better deal? He's already had a chance to do his deal and he reckons it was rubbish. So it's it's no longer a hypothetical. Like he's had his chance Someone else did a better one. So what what does he argue now, Marie? I know I was gonna say on a slightly different one, what I enjoy about this is that I think there's quite a lot of poetic justice involved because if you look this is going to be very nerdy and I only slightly apologize. We love nerdy. Um no, so if you look at the twenty nineteen Tory landslide, now we see Boris going, This was one hundred percent me, I just did that. If you look at the numbers, especially in the Red Wall, actually weirdly, twenty seventeen, like Theresa May started building the Red Wall. Twenty nineteen would not have mm. happened without twenty seventeen. The Tory vote actually went up quite a lot in a lot of those seats, which means that actually the Tories needed to only go that bit higher yeah, in 2019. Yeah. So I like that there's that. And, you know, Boris said that was just me. So for Boris to basically deliver the majority that then eventually Rishi needed to finish everything <laughs> feels oddly pleasing <laughs> of like it's a three-man job, actually. <laughs> it's it's the sort of thing that Johnson would do. Exactly. <laughs> um, I hear there was a huge amount of controversy about Commission President Ursula von der Leyen meeting King Charles after the business of the deal was done. Some people who are hostile to the deal say this involves the monarch in politics and trying to railroad them into accepting this deal. I mean, a lot of decent analysts are in this school of thought. I personally don't see it. Do you think the criticism is valid? Well, I mean, we say like a huge amount of controversy. I mean, all I principally know is like Jacob Rees-Mogg talking to the news and saying that, oh, this this verges on constitutional impropriety, mm. which uh, if you added the word darling could go in a carry on film <laughs> or something uh, like that. He's such a profoundly weird guy. Uh, everything. Um, I don't know. We, we in this country have this very odd relationship with the monarchy in that we insist on it being a totally non-political entity, despite the fact that it very obviously is yes. a tremendously political uh, entity. And, you know, Rishi Sunak was there standing next to uh, President von der Leyen as the prime minister of his majesty's government. Uh, and he was doing so in one of his majesty's very big houses uh, in mm. uh, Windsor Castle. Uh, and everything. So it, it would have been quite weird if um, someone had asked, like, it's like, uh, 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 President von der Leyen, uh, do you think that this is acceptable? It's like, oh, no, he just always seemed like a laugh. I just quite like to meet the guy or whatever. <laughs> and uh, oh, no, it just turns out it's totally fine uh, and whatnot. But yes, I think that um, this country in general, and this is quite possibly something that will come to the fore again and again after the uh, death of the late Queen, who I think was just so generally beloved uh, mm. that mm. I know not universally, obviously. There was 
a certain level of feeling towards her that meant that lots of questions about the political role of the monarchy weren't asked mm. uh, because it's like, oh, but she's fine uh, and everything. And now that you have uh, King Charles in position and his sort of active involvement in politics is well known, what are the, the black spider letters uh, that he uh, routinely wrote to yeah, yeah. ministers over the years and whatnot. This, this actually could be something that over the coming years uh, becomes a more active question about mm. British politics. Just in this particular case, it seems to me completely confected. He met Ardern just after she signed the New Zealand trade deal. No one went, oh, that's tantamount to him yeah. giving his endorsement to that deal. I mean, if the royals have done anything over the last however many centuries, it's sort of lubricate difficult political situations and sort of schmooze with people and, and throw a little bit of glitter in their eyes. So yeah. that, like, I mean, to some degree, that's what do. he's for. It's yeah, what like... they do. Uh, I'm just surprised so many uh, decent journalists have fallen for it. Yasmin, um, Biden had always said that the UK can forget about any sort of trade deal unless it solves the Northern Ireland situation in a way that respects the Good Friday Agreement. Do you think this will unlock negotiations with their states? Or do you agree with some analysts who suggest that the states isn't interested in a deal anyway, and this was just a, a convenient way of cooling things down? Going back to what we were discussing before, I think it would be funny if a trade deal did materialize, because obviously this is something that Boris Johnson has always wanted, and for it to happen after Rishi Sunak gets a deal and after he said, fuck the Americans, reportedly. I think he said that in the Especially after Boris Johnson said, fuck the Americans. Yes, specifically, not, yeah, specifically, not Rishi Sunak. Yeah. Um, I think that would be really rich. However, I don't necessarily see that happening, mostly because, A, I don't think I've heard really anyone in the U.S. talk about a U.S.-U.K. Mm -hmm. trade deal. If nothing else, what Sunak could get is Biden visiting in time for the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, yeah. which could be good for him as yeah, well. Be once again an opportunity to show that he's the statesman. He just had Zelensky come and visit. So it, there's, you know, he may get that. I, a trade deal might be one step too far. Mm. Though if you want a chlorinated chicken, I mean. <laughs> um, chlorination chicken as opposed to chlorination <laughs> chicken. Hey. Hey. I just wanted to give a brief shout out to Twitter user at Ben Ferno, uh, who tweeted on June the 24th, 2016, if you like The Phantom Menace, you're going to love the next five years of trade negotiations. <laughs> <laughs> he was wrong by at least five, two years. <laughs> Attitudes to immigration in general softened markedly after Brexit in what has come to be known as the populist paradox. But after a prolonged period during which the issue of small boat crossings has been relentlessly weaponized, perceptions are creeping towards the wrong direction again. Suella Braverman has called such boat crossings an invasion on our southern coast, a, a violent protest recently against asylum seekers being housed at a hotel in Knowsley was met not by condemnation from the Home Secretary, but by equivocation of the very fine people, people on both sides variety. And of course, that beacon of humanity, Lee Anderson, has been promoted to Deputy Chairman of the Tories. Yasmin, are these the desperate manoeuvrings of a flailing, increasingly unpopular party, or are they a more worrying, concerted, insidious effort by right-wing fringes to capture basically one of the two main contenders? 
I mean, there, there is very little going for the Tories at the moment, it feels like, which is why I think they've seized on this kind of purported threat mm. of small boat crossing so forcefully. Um, you know, compared to Sunak's, the priorities he set out for this year, like having inflation, uh, reducing waitlist times, I mean, tackling the issue of the, or this issue, at least, I think could be seen as markedly easier in that it's not necessarily affecting people's lives mm. in a great way in the way that th these other issues are. Um, and it's, I mean, if nothing else, a very useful scapegoat to whip up votes when the time comes. Um, so like I, the Mexico, you know. Precisely I mean, that, yeah. You know. So so I think it's it's probably mostly that. Though to your second point, there, there probably is some appetite on the fringes of the Tory party to go – dare I say, the way of the Republicans in the U.S., at least when it comes to kind of stoking fears of immigration and downplaying yeah. the threat of far-right extremism, as as we've seen Suella Braverman do um, recently. So uh, there's probably an element of that. But I mean, that, as you say, that existed before. Um, I think the fact that it's resurfaced is more an indication of Tory party weakness than it mm. is um, necessarily a genuine desire. But I, that also may be a generous interpretation. I hear we've seen a rise in far-right protests in the country and limited condemnation from the Home Secretary. The Tories are meant to be the party of law and order. I mean, why can't the Home Secretary unequivocally condemn a group that sets fire to police vans? Hmm. It, it seems like a fairly low-hanging fruit, yeah, right? Well, you'd think. Um, I think that, uh, as Yasmin was saying uh, just now, one of the things that yeah, Braverman has talked about, like, if we don't X, then the voters will punish us uh, for it, right? And I think that you can basically meme yourself into believing that any given group of people is somehow the real Britain, mm. uh, right? And it's like people across the political spectrum will make appeals to this sort of mythic group, uh, and they will have wildly different yeah. members depending on uh, where people and sit. ordinary uh, people. Politically. Yeah. The other one. Right? Yeah, ordinary, ordinary, ordinary people, hardworking families, the real British people, uh, all of this uh, sort of thing. And unfortunately, over the last few years, as the Conservative Party functionally subsumed UKIP uh, and has moved culturally in many ways, like right words, everything, this group of people, like a, a group of people who have extraordinarily uh, hostile views towards uh, immigration and asylum seekers, though, as you say, generally speaking in the public consciousness, the, the topic has lost a hell of a lot of salience since uh, mm -hmm. 2016. There is a section of the governing party who's memed themselves into believing that this is the real Britain, uh, right? The people who are going on much like furious yelling, like like people who personally I find quite frightening for obvious reasons. What is fortunate is that you know I I don't think that some sort of great example or expression of the general will even exists in societies or whatever. I don't think that there is any sort of like neatly definable thing of the real Britain. But whatever it is, if it does exist, it's not these guys. Mm. Like they are, th these politicians are wrong uh, about that. Um, but I think that that is what's happening. Like that, that's how politicians are and, thinking. And I have to say as a foreigner, and I don't know if the other two foreigners on the panel will back <laughs> me up on this. Um it couldn't be further away from what I considered real Britain when I sort of came to this country. Mm. This sort of angry, you know, spit-feckled um, ranting. It, it's, it couldn't be further removed from the sort of 
the politesse that I had in mind. And, and mm. you know, I mean, even when people are unhappy about something, they're at most sort of really passive-aggressive about mm. it, you know. It's all, I mean, it, it also, to be clear, I mean, especially, I mean, I suppose all three of us, but Alex, maybe you and I especially, cause I, because mainland Europe is so racist, I actually did see Britain as a bit of a haven, mm. you know, and, and a really tolerant country, which actually, if you look at the data, it is, but again, sadly, there may just be because France is really oh, no. racist. As, as I've yeah. said, like, I've been lucky to travel extensively, and I do think that Britain is the least racist country in the world. I just think that that says a lot more about the world than it does about Britain. Yeah. Earlier this month, Braverman said, it is clear and undeniable there are really, really serious pressures in communities, and saying so does not make you racist or bigoted. Is this a fair assessment of what is happening? What, what, what is the reality of these serious pressures that... 40,000 people a year are causing up and down the country. Well, I mean, I think fundamentally, Braverman has just constructed a straw man, right? That's that's all that's uh, happened there. Just like... So let me take this example because I read this number earlier today and it's uh, relating to a different country, so maybe this will be able to be a bit more light than heat. Right now, there are 150,000 Ukrainian children in the German school system, right, because of the number of Ukrainian refugees that, and families that have uh, been taken in uh, by Germany over the course of the last thing. I don't think anyone would say that suddenly having 150,000 additional children in a school system is not going to cause some sort of problems in the school system just because that's not what, yeah. what things are set up for. Stretch uh, it. Right? Yeah, of course. It's going to stretch it. Would if... You know, if someone were to say that, would my immediate response be, oh, well, you're clearly just extremely anti-Ukrainian and you don't want to No, that, that could just be a teacher saying that, oh, actually, like, you know, class sizes have gone up quite a bit. That's a bit more challenging, a bit more difficult, means that maybe we need more resources and whatever. And that can be. So I think that, yeah, Braverman's fundamental point is just entirely a straw man. It's also just astonishing to hear a conservative politician talk about, you know, Let's talk about pressures in communities uh, and things like that, right? Where what might pressures in communities be, right? It might be housing, it might be uh, employment, it might be a lack of public services, adequate transport and everything like that. And we had a government that for 13 years has, like all of their actions have just served to make those things worse, uh, right? So it's not like, like, it's like we will not only not, ameliorate these issues in a sort of community we will actively serve to make them worse and then discuss them as though they are someone else's responsibility entirely when we want to complain about them. Mm. Yes, I think one of the most startling transformations has been of the Conservative Party from the party of personal responsibility which is what they've always Mm. said they are to someone else's fault. Um, Marie, the gossip is that members of the newly created Fairham and Waterlooville seat, um, after the borders were messed about with in Hampshire, will choose MP Flick Drummond to be their candidate, um, leaving Braverman rather homeless. The Times reports that she's desperately on the lookout for a safer seat, but is not seen as a good fit for the more moderate shires. She's apparently sounded out quite a few and been rejected by them. Does this not go against the notion that she's saying what, you know, ordinary hardworking Britons are thinking, to use, it's to use high, a here's analogy? 
So first of all, I'm going to nick a joke from Twitter that said that actually Suella should simply stop at the nearest constituency, whatever it may be, because clearly <laughs> the nearest safe further. constituency. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really enjoyed, um, but no, so it's somewhat more seriously. I think, I mean, sort of yes and no, because I think I, I think it shows the problem in um, you know the, the cracks beginning to show. I think in the Conservatives voting coalition or even internal kind of you know ideological coalition because I, I I do think actually a lot of a lot of conservative voters and supporters and members are actually very anti-immigration and I think you know really enjoy the sort of rhetoric that Suella goes for so I think that you know that's not that there's no point denying that that's the case but also ultimately there are many seats and especially I think in terms of people actively involved in the conservative party and voting for them um, if you look at the blue wall, as we're calling it now, I suppose, these are not people who care that much about immigration at all. You know, they may care a bit, but they want the language to be a bit woolier and they want actually, you know, some people should come and some refugees and let's let's maybe not talk about it like that. So, again, they would not want someone like Suella. So they're sort of having the problem that I think uh, a lot of people talked about the Labour Party is having um, before Keir Starmer, so under Jeremy Corbyn, yeah. of saying, actually, you do have to appeal to very different groups of voters. But in the same way that, you know, I think the Labour equivalent would be a friend of mine who used to be a kind of, you know, London Labour st- stalwart, so like very calm gay man, incredibly sort of like fun and loud and like quite outrageous, got sent to be an election agent in proper sort of like deep northern working class CLP for the election. And I believe he lasted 10 days because he managed to alienate so that every single person in the Labour group there so quickly that they just sent him right back down to London. So again, so it's not unique to the Conservatives, I think. It's just, there's always going to be weird, uneasy coalitions. Yasmin, attending a rally in Rotherham earlier this month, the newsagent Lewis Goodall offered the droll observation that both sides are accusing each other of being paedophiles. There is also some crossover with 15-minute city and anti-vax protests. Are we seeing the birth of the British equivalent of the QAnon movement, basically, just embracing every nutty conspiracy going? Another great American export. (laughs) Well done. Um, Yeah. (laughs) We do our best. (laughs) bit absurd to think that something as seemingly innocuous as advocating for having like parks, shops and schools in close proximity to your home is an international socialist concept that would take away <laughs> our personal freedom. That's which is apparently real words that people have used. Yeah, there's a great piece in Wired um, that took that goes into this in great length. My biggest takeaway from reading it is just goes to show that we can't have nice things. We don't deserve them. Mm. Um, but yeah, I know it, it does seem to be I think it, it just kind of feels like every issue – it feels like – I mean this is certainly the case in the US where it feels like every issue is not only politicized but also just subject to the worst kind of interpretation. Um, and I think obviously if that were to come to the UK in a very serious way, that would obviously be really sad. I think the fact that the 15-minute city is getting that in particular is just ridiculous. Um, but yeah, I would recommend that, that Wired piece. It was very good. Can I ask one to the whole panel? Once the ink is dry in the protocol deal, is there a chance for Sunak to actually stand up to the right of the party? Does he need them too much or does he just need them for this? And as soon as this goes through, he can go, OK, we're going to be sane now mm. because that apparently works. Like if they get a bump in the polls mm. after Sunak acting like an adult human being for five minutes, will will there be quite a good point to say, oi, just... Stop it now. 
um, I will answer a slightly different question because I love to be annoying. Um, so I, I think what will be interesting is actually what size that caucus will be after this. You think you know, I know 100 Tory MPs voting against the deal, etc. And now it's like, no, it's probably going to be like four nutters and that's that. Everyone else is falling into line. So I think it's more, it's not necessarily whether Rishi will change, but whether the opposition to Rishi internally will change. And I believe it might actually, but uh, we'll see. Now, what a turnip for the books. Thank you. Fucking hell. Thank you. <laughs> you may well be listening to this podcast as you wander around the supermarket aisles, going to the big Sainsbury's just to feel something. You might notice a lack of salad on the shelves. Asda and Morrison's have imposed a maximum of three fresh items per person. As another thing happens that never used to happen before Brexit, but is definitely nothing to do with Brexit, the food minister, appropriately named Mark Spencer, which I just love, (laughs) called in the big supermarkets for a meeting on Monday where his team briefed. He asked them what happened. I'm afraid supermarkets, as well as the farmers' unions, wholesalers, the Cold Chain Federation, and any sane economist have been telling the government what happened for months. Brexit happened. It's just that it couldn't hear their warnings over its own cries of stop talking Britain down. One of the people who have been warning about this for years is restaurant critic Jay Rayner. Andrew Harrison talked to him earlier today. Jay, I've just been to the supermarket here in Liberal North London. No tomatoes, no peppers, not a lot of salad. The band Massive Attack just shared a photo of a transit van with no tomatoes stored in this van overnight, written in dirt on the back. Have we finally reached I told you so stations? We bloody have, because I bloody told you so, didn't I? I came on a Romaniacs and gave you an explanation of the systematic problems, the systemic problems with the British food supply chain and the British food system and how it was challenged by Brexit. I couldn't be exact about what would be the thing that would tip it over the edge. But I did say that we were at risk from external shocks and uh, were too dependent on imports, and that if we didn't watch it, we'd end up with empty shelves. And as it turned out, empty salad bowls. And I have to tell you, I don't think this is a one-off. I think there are many other issues that are going to come down the line and uh, get us in the soft, uh, sensitive parts before we either come to our senses or starve. In a summary of what you've been writing for years at the weekend, uh, you identified this as a result of a leave it to Tesco's policy, which goes back to 2006. We just assumed that A, we were rich enough, B, global supply lines were strong enough that nothing could really go wrong. Um, And as you say, this is external shocks. It's not just Brexit, is it? Why does everybody want to say it's not just Brexit? I mean, it is. Because we're trying to be fair. We'll we'll stop it. For God's sake, let's just stop it. Let's just (laughs) accept that it is bloody Brexit, that we are Mm. a weaker, poorer country as a result of this act of self-harm that was committed upon us and, you know, that we committed upon ourselves in 2016. Yes, there are other things. There have been issues for decades. I mean, you know, you can go back to changes in planning regulations under Thatcher um, in the 80s and early, very early 90s, which allowed supermarkets to boom, which resulted in just 12 companies controlling 95% of food retail uh, and them using that enormous economic power to drive harder and harder deals with British farmers because they felt they could go buy everything from everywhere whenever they wanted to. 
our self-sufficiency drops from the mid-70s to around the, you know, 59, 60%. And then along comes Brexit, which means that costs rise for British farmers even further, particularly, for example, salad vegetable growers, the Lee Valley growers, um, APS, the tomato growers company. They are told that they can only bring in workers on six-month visas when really they need them for nine months. That means they need to bring in two cohorts and retrain them all. That's an enormous cost to them and a cost which the supermarkets will not match. As a result, a lot of them have decided to knock down their greenhouses and get planning permission to build, you know, to build uh, real houses that people can live in because it's more profitable or just leave their greenhouses empty. And that is a direct result of Brexit changes. And anybody who tells you otherwise is Jacob Rees-Mogg. So if it's affecting all of Europe, as Jacob Rees-Mogg would tell us, it isn't. don't get, get all wound up. This, this, these are pro- supply line problems and power problems and the Ukraine war is affecting all of Europe. Why are we all seeing these pictures of groaning shelves covered in tomatoes and peppers? Because it isn't affecting the whole of Europe. I mean, mm. there, there are um, groaning shelves all over Europe. Yes, you'll probably find a few places where they've got a, um, you know, a little bit of a supply issue. By the same token, you'll find places in uh, liberal North London where they have got salad vegetables because the suppliers come in. There are other issues, anecdotally, that transport companies do not want to sit at, at Calais and Dover for 77 hours to get their stuff through. Who are you going to send your crops to, those crops that you have got, if you're if you're a little short change, well, you're not going to try and get them through the channel. It is extraordinary, isn't it? These Brexiteers who come up with these disingenuous explanations. They're either being disingenuous or stupid. And I don't think they're stupid. I think they just prefer to lie um, because it suits their agenda. It's ludicrous. It really is. Have you noticed produce getting, to use a technical term, crappier over the past few years? Because I've just, I don't know whether it's in my mind, but the the tomatoes taste woollier. No, I don't think, I, I mean, honestly, no. Right. Because, um, I, I mean, there, there are a lot of clever tricks that mass agriculture plays, a lot of them to do with marketing. So if you look at those taste the difference ones from, um, a, from Sainsbury's other supermarkets, we're obviously about you know, grown on the vine. Well, a lot of those come out of Thanet Earth, the huge hydroponics unit down in Kent. They look more delicious. No, I don't think there has been a change in the quality, but there will be a change in the price and the availability because of certain things that are undermining the ability of British agriculture to supply and pick up on shortfall when those overseas providers that we have been looking to, to, you know, to, to fill our shelves are not able to do so. You've been saying for a while we're going to have to pay more for our food, uh, which is a difficult argument to make at a time of food banks. Well, it's too late. I mean, it's too late is the problem. I was saying it, I think, um, when did I come on Romaniacs? 2017, 18? Something like that. And I said it to DEFRA in 2014. I said it to Michael Gove in 2017. And I said it, most importantly, in my book, Greedy Man and Hungry World, in 2013. I mean, the argument doesn't really work now, while we're in the midst of a cost of living crisis, to say, not least because I don't think the supermarkets pay the blindest bit of attention, there is a systemic issue. But the the underlying point, and I keep making it, and people are going, no, you're right, aren't you? Is we talk about food poverty, 
as if it's a separate thing, and that we must therefore engineer our food system to be able to service those in food poverty. Well, if you do that, you will end up with what we've already got, which is a deformed food system, and you'll still have people in poverty. So we need a food system that is fit for purpose, to use that horrible phrase, and we need to sort out poverty. Um, And if that makes me sound like an old trot, then I'm willing to take it. But that's a very simple issue. And, And just one, we like numbers. So let me give you a number. In the 1970s, early 1970s, we were spending 20% or so on average of our income on food. By recent years, that had dropped to 10.1%. Now, we can all celebrate that drop in price, but it had gone too far. And the amount of our income that we spend on food simply has to rise a small amount. Or we'll have more of these sorts of situations. We have to find some way to get our self-sufficiency up. Not to 100%. Britain will never be, UK will never be 100% self-sufficient, nor should it be. But we can do a hell of a lot better than where we are now and look after ourselves a hell of a lot better. So what would that remade food system look like? Imports have been rising and rising based on the idea that we can always access stuff. You cannot get straight to increased self-sufficiency overnight. No, you can't. And and it and it demands that the, the, the main uh, levers are pulled by the mass retailers. And those 12 companies, actually, I'm not going to include all of them because famously the discounters, Aldi and Lidl, are renowned for paying very well and on time because they buy such a... Um, a small range of products compared to the the big full-service supermarkets, but enormous amounts, they can afford to pay well. But the bigger supermarkets are the ones who are responsible. They have been given full run at UK food retail, and with that comes a serious corporate social responsibility. They are custodians of our food supply chain, and they have to look at their business model because it really is not working. There's another detail here, which is kind of kind of fun. You might like it. Um, the supermarkets uh, often pay very low salaries to the, the base level of their employees, you know, the employees that they need to man the tills and fill the, the shelves. They pay so little that many of them are on tax credits, which essentially means that the government is subsidising Tesco, Sainsbury's, Morrison's and Asda to screw up the food supply chain. As you said earlier, this isn't a blip. Yes. I think you wrote in the Observer at the weekend, it's not a blip. What's the next at-risk sector after salad? Do we have to start stocking up on pasta? Well, I mean, it's fresh fruit and veg, which is really a, an issue. Um, there is a lot of evidence that apple and pear trees, which take a long time to grow, um, they, after about 20 years, they have to be cut down. They're, they've lived their life but they're not being replanted, which means apples and pears, those sorts of fruits that we are entirely capable of growing much more of, are going to go in reverse. Our self-sufficiency in those fruits you would imagine we would have been great in was really poor for quite a while, and it had improved greatly over the past sort of, um, I would say, 10 years to 2013. It was doing really, really well, but it's in decline again. Um, and the same thing could happen. You know, we'll be at the back of the queue and we'll we'll suddenly find a smaller range and uh, less availability of apples and pears. Jay Rayner, lovely to talk to you. Enjoy your turnips this evening. Thank you very much. Yasmin, DEFRA Secretary and Liz Truss acolyte, Therese Coffey, has encouraged Brits to turn to the humble turnip or rutabaga, a much cooler name, in this time of scarcity. Uh, have you ever had one? I'm Arab, so I've had them in pickled form. They're usually so pink. Good. So, so good. So good. Get on that. Now's your time. So, yes, I have had one. Um, but I, I can't say that I've had them 
in the sort of British style of serving very often. I've had them like burned to a crisp in a roast and those were pretty good. But um, but like would I replace turnips like because I think. Can the, you clarify what the British way of having them is? I, Just I, to confirm that it's the same as in my head. Oh, so I don't know if this is right. Now I feel like this is the life in the UK Boiled all over again. Buggery, <laughs> I've had them roasted and they're right. actually quite good that way. I know that I think Coffee was saying that we should be replacing turnips like replacing tomatoes and lettuce with turnips and the idea of just having like a turnip salad or like you know swapping out your blt for like a bt bacon and turnip like i just i don't think that fits i think a nice turnip base on a pizza is actually the way my nonna made it (laughs) Uh, did you see this coming when you first came to brexit britain did you did you consider (laughs) that you'd have to wave goodbye to salad was that one of the trade-offs? <laughs> I think some things were just better. I don't think I'd be here if I knew that what I was. Yeah, no, I did not. I did not have that hindsight. No, it's still not, very happy to be here. Don't send me back. It's not too late, love. Please. <laughs> I hear you're the only panelist this week brought up in this country. Yeah, go weird, home, everyone. Right? <laughs> Do you feel we're adequately prepared for prolonged periods of scarcity? Did, did you learn how to cook? with turnips at school was this well a thing to be honest i've so I, I apparently i am one of the few people clearly in this room who's never uh, had a turnip because uh, while while i am british i'm also british indian which gives me a cultural insistence on my food tasting of something uh, which uh, really uh, seems to go against much of the traditional fare we've lived through even though it currently doesn't feel like this obviously an era of relatively very cheap food and if you compare us in previous years in terms of uh, the proportion of uh, household income that is spent on food it is uh, much lower um, in this country than it mm-hmm. is in uh, many countries in the uh, EU for example so i don't think that we're prepared i think that everyone's just been fundamentally shocked by by what's happened in super and just with prices uh recently right it's out of nowhere you're like you know you go to the supermarket and you're like dude like this like i remember that last week this was like a quid and now it's a mortgage what the fuck yes, is going yeah. on um and there's the um and i think that it's it's a tremendous shame there's there's two things that if i had my magic wand of uh changing what uh, could be taught in schools, uh, I would change. Firstly, I think that we're woefully uh, underprepared in terms of financial literacy uh, going into uh, adult life. Mm-hmm. And secondly, I think it's a real shame that I, not only was I not taught to cook with turnips at school, I wasn't really taught anything about food. Is it fair for Remainers to blame this on Brexit here? It, it, it may be messing a lot of things up, but it can't control the weather. Or can it? Well, I think that Brexit is one of those things that for certain things is sort of solely responsible for difficulties but uh, that that we're facing but on many things has that little bit that just makes it you know that bit more difficult than it needs to be and that leading to sort of compounding problems throughout and i think that that is far more the case across the wider economy right it's 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 not like brexit has just immediately sort of like destroyed everything but it's more like we're running a race and we're the only people who've decided to hold an egg and spoon while doing it it's like well it's it's obviously just going to make it like that bit more difficult no one's saying that you can't run a race Uh, well the the race may be difficult because of the rain yeah but no one else is carrying an egg and spoon yeah uh and so there, there are lots of things for example like so 
lots of places that grow under glass in this country are massively affected by uh, rising gas prices and everything. And I know that particularly with things like tomatoes, lots of people have just been like, there is absolutely no point in getting growing going in these greenhouses because it will just cost mm. so much in terms of our gas bill. Uh, so we're not going to bother. Um, there is, and this is, I guess, a Brexit-linked thing, a massive reduction in a seasonal workforce uh, coming that many of these industries were reliant on. A completely, I think, legitimate counterpoint uh, to that is that why was the food production industry extremely reliant on extremely low wages and not investing in machinery? There's like, you know, there's that side of things. So I, I would say that basically... No. no. Is Brexit solely responsible for these sorts of things? No, but it clearly doesn't help. Marie, you actually predicted we'd be garnishing our martinis with turnip rather than olives after Brexit. I predicted turnip sandwiches. I said on this show, we'll all be sitting in our own poo eating turnip sandwiches because we'll have no... But we're looking at the stars. No fresh food <laughs> and no care workers. Um, uh, I, I wish I'd been wrong. How do the French handle the scarcity of produce they rely on, aside from being a lot better at cooking and protesting? Oh, no, like insanely badly. They go mental. So there was like a Nutella. So hang on. So in the past few years, yeah, there was a Nutella shortage for a bit. People went mad. But like mad. I think there were obviously like riots in supermarkets because like Nutella is like crack cocaine to French people. Um, and then, yeah, there was mustard as well. So there was a big mustard shortage last year. But it was, so I said, my French friends, like, there were Instagram stories of like maps where you could find certain supermarkets where you could source the mustard. And like, people stockpiled mustard. Like, how much mustard do you realistically get through on a weekly basis. So no, we don't handle it well at all. <laughs> As the climate crisis changes the world, will we have to get used to seasonality? Or does global warming mean the Spanish will have to come to us for tomatoes in 20 years' time? Because it will be a nice, mm. balmy 20 degrees in winter. Oh, what a thought. Oh, God, I can't wait for that. Sorry to the rest of the world, but I really want... Yeah, also most here. of the island will sink... So I wouldn't, no, 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 I wouldn't no, no, agitate again. hugely for that. I know, absolute win-win. London by the sea and also it never gets cold. <laughs> like, that's all I want. Um, but I mean, I, I don't know. And, and there's a word, and I think it's a really interesting debate actually of saying, and I've seen that a lot on my Twitter timeline, especially saying, well, you know, did Therese Coffee have a bit of a point of saying we should not expect, even as people who care about the environment, we probably should not expect to be able to eat everything all the time. Yeah. Other people are saying actually that's just decline talk. You know, we, we, we have those things and we should be able to make them work. Um, and I'm not really sure who I'm siding with here, but I do think that the argument that says that actually the past few years or decades, you know, where we could just buy anything at any point of the year may well be remembered as a blip. I think it's quite a compelling um, argument that that may well be the case in the end. So, mm. yeah, enjoy it while you can. So it's nearly the end of the show. What films, books or traditional Welsh folk songs Hapus Dewi Sant to our listeners of Gumri. Have our panel been digging into? I hear. I mean, 
I've I've mainly been uh, on the Welsh folk songs, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just wait for the drop, wait for the drop. Um, no, I uh, mentioned uh, during last week's episode uh, that I was going to go and watch a film called Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. I have now watched uh, the film Marcel the Shell with Shoes On and I enjoyed it so much that I'm going again on Wednesday. It is absolutely spectacular and I heartily uh, recommend it to everyone. Let battle commence, ah here. And that is a reference that you will get once you watch the film. Okay. I think you just enjoy seeing the title. Marie? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, actually, slightly embarrassingly, or I don't know, maybe it's an advert for the podcast, I read the Premonitions Bureau recently because someone mentioned it on this very podcast and I thought, oh, I should read it. And it was very good, so I recommend it again. But I feel like that doesn't really count because it's been recommended here before. Um, but sadly, I've not really been up to much. So I have been rewatching New Girl, which I adore, which is a show that, you know, and it was so good and the, the premise is really... Uh, straightforward if you've not watched it it's a sitcom woman in her 20s moves into a flat share of three boys in their 20s chaos ensues over many seasons but <laughs> it's so but it's so funny like it's one of those genuinely like properly laugh out loud funny uh sitcoms but also it has so much heart um and yeah no it's i think it's the third or fourth time i'm watching it and i'm still loving every second it's it includes so one of my favorite jokes of all time when one character says to the other that they have the credit score of a homeless ghost <laughs> <laughs> really great. Uh, what about you, Jasmine? So this is not nearly as cool as New Girl, but um, I've been watching the first part of season four of the stalker show You, yeah. starring the guy from Gossip Girl. But I've mostly been enjoying it because it's based in London, and I'd been taking bets with friends on like where they would have Joe live and like what that would be. And what's hilarious is that further evidence that this is clearly American creators of a show set in Britain is they have Joe basically saying that he enjoys the walk or his commute from work to home, which is Royal Holloway in Surrey to South Kensington, a six hour walk. (laughs) (laughs) And he's in good shape. (laughs) He is, yeah. I don't mind the walk. I'm like, I would mind that Also, his flat weirdly has St. Paul's on one side and the Tower of London (laughs) on the other side. It's like, what is It's a very nice flat. And I was like, I just refuse to believe that you can afford that on a professor's salary. It's... But then again, um, it is fiction, which is probably good for us all. My recommendation is The Last of Us. Um, I know you've heard good things about it. I I am astonished by just how good it is. Forget the, even the context, which is excellent. Forget the writing. Forget all of it. If only for the two central performances by Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey, it's worth watching. If they don't get every award going because this is ostensibly classed as horror, it will be a travesty because really the whole show is about their relationship. It's it's not really about zombies or infected people. And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? We'll be back on Friday, or if you'd like the podcast a little earlier, you can back us on Patreon. There's something new coming just for Patreon backers, a monthly Zoom with one of our panellists where you can ask them anything you like. The first one is with yours truly, and it's this Thursday, 2nd of March at 7pm. Search Patreon, Oh God, What Now? or follow the link in the show notes to sign up. Now here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, along with a thank you to those splendid Patreon people. Hello, and massive thanks from me to Joanne van Meegarden, Peter Mitchell, and Puffle Nugget. Many thanks from me and greetings to Tom Mowat, Mark, and Mindy Goose. 
Thank you for your generosity from me to Sue Fowler, Angela Schaefer, and Jack Powell. And finally, all the best and a huge shout from me to Sam Munahan, Carol Sidney, and Jem McCarran. We'll see you next time. Oh God, What Now was presented by Alex Andreu with Marie LeConte, Yasmin Saran, and Ahir Shah. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Kasia Tomashevich and me, Alex Reese. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Music by Kenny. Music by Kenny Dickinson. Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production. And walk on over the